whatever you say in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Psalm chapter 25. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love. For they have been told from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. This is the word of God. One more time, I'll say it. Good morning, family of God. Today we're on week five of our series studying what the Bible teaches about God's love for us. And we've just been trying to bask in this truth that God is love and God loves you. So if everybody could help me out, turn your neighbor and say, God loves you. And I don't know what is your situation coming here today. I know there's some people in the room that come here full of faith and really excited to worship God. And I want to say to you, God loves you. And He's excited to hear your prayers and to receive your worship and to speak to you today. I'm sure there's other people who have arrived here today and you don't feel that way at all. You feel like you have little or no faith. You know maybe that you're not right with God. You've been living in sin. And the the scriptures we've been Studying have made it so clear that we can say to you also, God loves you. Maybe you feel like nobody else sees you. Nobody else understands what you're going through. And that might be true as far as humans are concerned, but there is somebody who sees you. God sees you. God loves you. So whatever needs you bring here today, if you're wounded, God's love is here ready to heal you. 
If you're confused and don't know which way to go in life, God's here to guide you. If you don't know how you're going to make it in the next day and you need provision, God is here with love to provide for you. If you've been living in sin and you need forgiveness and you need a fresh start, God's here to forgive you and give you a fresh start. What we're saying is God is love. And we want to learn how to dwell in that truth and let it transform us. Today, we're looking at Psalm 25 because it helps us connect some important dots between the theme of God's love and a really, really important biblical theme, which is the theme of the covenant. So everybody say, covenant. covenant. We're going to talk today about the covenant. If you want a title for the prayer, uh, excuse me, a title for the sermon, my sermon title is Prayer and the Covenant. When we understand God's covenant of steadfast love with us, it really, really changes the way we pray. Listen, we don't have to pray with wishful thinking. You know what wishful thinking is? It's like, I really hope this happens, but it's probably not going to happen. We don't have to pray with wishful thinking. When we understand God's covenant and we learn how to pray in a way that is shaped with God's covenant, we can pray with absolute security and confidence. The theme of the covenant in the Bible is closely connected to the theme of God's love. So that's what we're digging into today. I want to invite you one more time to bow your head and pray. And I want to remind you of something that we said a couple weeks ago, which is that God's word is always powerful. It's always living. It's always active. It's always ready to heal us, to transform us. But we need to open ourselves up to God's word. And there's a lot of scriptures that teach us the attitude of faith and humility and expectation we bring to God's word is directly proportional to what we receive from God's word. So let's pause right now and pray wherever you are, wherever you were when you got here today. Why don't you take a second to pray right now that the Holy Spirit will help you to have faith and humility to hear the word of God. And you can be sure that he will hear and answer that prayer. So let's bow our heads together. You can just pray quietly in your heart for a moment, then I'm going to lead us into prayer. Our God, you are so good, so loving, so wise, so faithful. Nothing I could ever stand up here and say about you would be good enough to describe how good you are. And nothing we could ever think about you could fully grasp how great and good you are. But we ask for help and power from your Holy Spirit. Give us grace to hear and believe and receive and obey and be transformed by your Holy Word today. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this psalm, Psalm 25 that we've heard, is a prayer which is flowing out of a heart that is in the midst of suffering. The person who's praying this prayer is going through really intense troubles of various kinds. You can look with me in the text. By the way, you probably noticed our projector is broken right now, so there's nothing on the screen. But if you look in your bulletin, you'll see the text printed. And if you look with me at verse 2... You see that right at the beginning of the psalm, we learn that the person praying this prayer has deep personal problems, individual problems. They're described in this verse. Oh my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. So right from the beginning of the psalm, we can see this person has 
personal problems, individual problems. Namely, this person praying this prayer has enemies who are trying to put him to shame. They want to humiliate him and then exult over him, which means rejoice in his downfall. He's got personal problems. But then when we get to the end of the psalm, we see that not only does he have personal problems, but he's part of a community that has communal problems. Look at verse 22. Verse 22 says, Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. So he's saying, I as an individual have problems, and we as a people have problems. Anybody know what it's like to have problems? This psalm is attributed to David. And when David talks about Israel's problems, remember, he's the king of Israel. So the line between communal problems and personal problems for him is very thin. But in our own ways, that's true for all of us. When there's problems at work, those become your problems, don't they? It's hard to leave them at work. When there's family problems, those become your problems. Sometimes there's big cultural, national problems. The last two years has been hard in the world. There's been sickness. There's been isolation. There's been alienation. There's conspiracy theories floating around everywhere. People are confused. They don't know what to believe. A lot of us have experienced grief and loss. And that has a domino effect that spreads out in the culture so that I can say pastorally in my experience and talking to other pastors and social workers and uh, counselors, everybody I talk to is saying we've never seen this level of widespread emotional problems problems, widespread relationship problems. Everybody's struggling. So can we just be honest and say we're all struggling here today? And not only that, but David is aware he has personal problems and community problems that are other people's fault. Don't you hate it when you have problems and you didn't do anything wrong? You did everything right and still people are mean to you. But he also has problems that are his own fault, which I think is worse. I hate it when I'm suffering and I know it's because I was a fool. But look at verse 11. He prays for your namesake, O Lord. Pardon my guilt. I've got personal problems because of other people. I've got community problems because of other people. But I've got a lot of problems that are my own fault because of my own sin. All of these different kind of problems get mixed together. They're all in the sauce. Sometimes we're... We're just struggling, we're struggling emotionally, we're struggling spiritually, we're struggling every way, and we don't even know how to name the problem because there's too many problems to name. And all of that becomes clear that it's all mixed up in verses 16 through 19. If you could glance down at those verses with me. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. This is interesting. He says, I'm lonely. But David was surrounded by people that respected him in their lives for him. But here's the thing, many of us know firsthand, you can be surrounded by people who love you and still feel totally lonely. Still feel alienated. He he continues, the troubles of my heart are enlarged. This is actually a vivid image. The word translated troubled is a Hebrew word which means tightness. So what this phrase literally means is the tightness of my heart or the tightness of my soul is expanding. How can you be tight and expanding at the same time? Some of you know exactly what he means though. You feel so weighed down with troubles that there's a deep pressure inside of you and it's spreading and it's getting deeper and you just feel like it's about to crush you or explode. 
So he says, the troubles of my heart and the tightness of my soul are enlarged, they're expanding. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. People just hate me. They want to harm me. So David's got troubles. He's got problems. But do you know what's remarkable remarkable about this psalm? The general tone of the psalm is one of total confidence and security. As a matter of fact, the Old Testament scholar Willem van Gimmeren observed about this psalm that this psalmist, as he prays throughout the psalm, continually displays two attitudes. Humble submission and joyful confidence. Humble submission. God, you're the king and I'm submitted to you. And joyful confidence. God, you're my king, so I know you're going to save me. Am I saying that he's not hurting? No, he is hurting. You can be hurting and joyful at the same time. As a matter of fact, if you listen to this psalm, you start hearing, we can be all sorts of contradictions at the same time. I can be sorrowful and joyful at the same time. David's saying, I can be a big sinner and righteous at the same time. We're complicated. Anybody else relate to the fact that sometimes it's hard to understand ourselves? Sometimes we don't have to figure it out. You just got to talk to God about it, right? This is the psalm marked by joyful confidence. You can see it throughout the psalm, but let me just show you a couple places. Verse 3, he says, Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. None who wait for you shall be put to shame. Now, in verse 2, he's worried. He's saying, God, I don't want to be put to shame by my enemies. But now he's saying with confidence, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. you got to connect that with verse 5. At the end of verse 5, David says, for you, I wait all the day long. So he's saying, God, I may be a sinner, but I'm a sinner who knows how to wait for you as my only salvation. Therefore, I'm confident my enemies will not win. See the same thing happening in verses 12 through 13, who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being and his offspring shall inherit the land. David is saying, I've sinned, but I also fear you, God, and I'm waiting for you, God, and I'm hoping in you, God. Therefore, because through all my struggles, I cling to you. I'm confident I will not be put to shame. God will instruct me. He's going to lead me in the way I should go. He's going to let me live in a place of well-being, of goodness, and of peace. And my children after me shall thrive and inherit the land, which is true for Solomon and for his descendants, and especially for the heir of David, Jesus Christ, who's the heir of all creation. Now, a question. How can the psalmist be so full of trouble and yet so full of joyful confidence? Think about that. How do those two things go together? You might want to think about it for yourself. Jesus said, in me you will have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But in me you will have peace. How can David be so filled with troubles? External troubles and internal troubles. Individual troubles and community troubles. Troubles that are other people's fault and troubles that are his own fault. Relational troubles, emotional troubles, weighed down by fear and anxiety. How can he have all of that and joyful confidence? Answer. Because David has learned to see his real and big problems within 
the context of an even larger reality. Listen, we don't have to pretend that our troubles aren't real in order to be okay. But there's another way. You don't have to pretend to be okay in order to be okay. It's okay to not be okay. We can be honest about how big our problems are. But then, after we're honest about how big our problems are, then we need to put that within a larger context of a bigger reality. What is the bigger reality? The bigger reality is this. David knows he is bound to God in an unbreakable covenant of steadfast love. That's the bigger reality. He's bound to God. Not because he tied himself to God, but because God tied himself to David. Christian, if you trust in Christ, you're bound to God. Not because of how good you are at holding on to Jesus, but because of how good Jesus is at holding on to you. David knows nothing can separate him from God's love. The psalmist is not okay. Let's be honest about this. But he knows that it's okay to not be okay because God is love. And even though it's really not okay now, it's going to be okay because God is a promise-keeping God. He's a covenant-keeping God. Now, the key word covenant appears twice in Psalm 25. I'll show both of them to you real quick. Verse 10. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimony. So David's saying, you've bound me in relationship to you. I've just confessed that I'm a big sinner and yet I'm holding to you. I'm confessing my sins to you. I'm waiting for you. So I know you're leading me on a path called steadfast love. Everybody say steadfast love. Verse 14, the friendship of the Lord is for those who fears to them and he makes known to them his covenant. There's our key word again. Covenant, covenant, covenant. Not only this, if you study biblical theology, the concept of the covenant has a vocabulary. There's a lot of words associated with the concept of the covenant and most of those words appear in this psalm. They're all over this psalm. This is a covenant psalm. Particularly the word, uh, the, the language of remembering. When David tells God to remember things, it's not because God forgets things. This is covenantal language language is really about claiming promises. So this psalm is all about the covenant. David knows the God of the covenant. So let's stop for a second to define what we're talking about. If you're a note taker, this might be a good moment to take notes for just a second. What are we talking about when we talk about the covenant? Well, at a basic level, a covenant is a binding relationship that's based on promises. Now we all know about disposable relationships because we've had them, right? And we all know about human relationships that were supposed to be binding, but then somebody broke a promise. But when God makes a promise, he keeps the promise. A covenant is a relationship. And when we talk about God's covenant, it's a relationship created by God and by God's promises. It's binding on both parties. As we read through the scriptures, we see the theme of God's covenant Showing up over and over. God makes gracious promises that establish a certain kind of relationship with his people. He does it with Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3 when he promises the offspring of Eve is going to crush the head of the serpent. He does it uh, with Abraham. Before that, he does it with Noah. We talked about the covenant with Noah actually a few weeks ago. God makes a promise to Noah and through him to all humanity and to all creation that he's going to preserve the life of his world. God makes a special covenant with Abraham. says, I'm going to bless you and your seed, Abraham. And through you, I'm going to bless all the nations, all the ethnic groups of the earth. Then he uh, repeats and expands that covenant with Abraham's descendants, Isaac and Jacob. God makes a covenant with Moses. 
which we're going to talk about in a minute. God makes a covenant with David. He promises to David, one of your descendants is going to rule forever, not only over Israel, but over all the nations, bringing peace and justice to the world. Who is that descendant, by the way? It's all about Jesus. Everybody say, it's all about Jesus. Which actually leads me to my next point, because all of those covenant promises throughout the Old Testament are pointing forward to one person, and it's Jesus. I love the way that 2 Corinthians 1.20 says it. It says, for every one of God's promises is yes in Jesus Christ. Every one of the promises leads to Him. When you understand Jesus and the covenant, you start being able to read the Old Testament as your Bible. The promises that God has given in the Old Testament apply to you. Let me give you a a few of reasons for this. Just go study Galatians 3. Galatians 3 will help you a lot, but I'm going to read you a couple verses there. It says this in verse 16. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Which means, the real recipient of all the promises God gave Abraham is Jesus. Now that becomes really important when we trust in Jesus. Because that means we get to receive those promises with Him, which is what verse 29 is about. Galatians 3.29 says this, And if you are, uh, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heir according to promises. So this is something important. I want you to hear this, everybody. Meditate on it. Write it down. Hear it. If you've trusted in Jesus, all God's promises are yours in Christ. If you've trusted in Jesus, all God's promises are yours in Christ. But when we get to the New Testament, by the way, the word testament means covenant. Old covenant, new covenant. When we get to the New Testament, the covenant is made new. It's renewed. Um, there's parts of it that are fulfilled by Christ, so they don't apply to us directly. So we don't have to keep all the food laws, for example, of the Old Testament. But also, the co- when the covenant is renewed, it's made better. Let me give you one more verse about this. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6. You might want to look it up when you get home. Hebrews 8, 6 says this. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent... Uh, that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is based on better promises. It says God has made a new covenant in Christ. If you trust in Jesus, you're bound to, in that covenant relationship with God. God says, I am yours and you are mine. I promise. We're tied together by my grace. And I've given you promises. And there's lots of great Old Testament promises, but the New Testament promises are better. Those are the ones that Jesus has given us. Now, those promises are connected to our theme of love. After all, this is a sermon series about God's love, right? And I want you to understand, if we're going to understand all that the Bible says about God's love, we have to connect the theme of love to promises and to covenant. Let me show you how this happens in this psalm. Look at verse 6. Verse 6 is a prayer. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love. Look at verse 7, the second half of the verse. According to your steadfast love, remember me. Now, obviously, God does not forget anything. He sees the end of history from eternity past. He, He sees all times and all places. He knows everything. But... Calling on God to remember is claiming a promise. God, you promised to love us. God, you promised 
to show mercy to us. God, you promised to forgive us. Those promises, for example, you can see in chapter uh, Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 through 7, which is probably what David has in mind. When the Lord passes before Moses and, and says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love to thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. God promised to love His people. He promised to show mercy to his people. He promised to forgive their sins. And God is not insulted when you remind him of his promises because we know that God doesn't forget. We're really reminding ourselves and we're exercising our faith saying, no matter how I feel, I'm holding on to the promise of God and I'm claiming him and saying, God, you keep your promises. You keep your promises. That's how the covenant teaches us to pray. Okay, let me... Let me back up just for a second, and let's, let's make it real for a second. There's a lot of us here who are not okay. A lot of us are here, here are not okay for some of the same reasons David is not okay. A lot of us here have personal problems. Anybody want to amen that one? A lot of us have communal problems. I mean, all of us have communal problems insofar as the world is trying to figure out this, how to get out of this pandemic and our culture is being ripped apart by all sorts of cultural polarization. We all have communal, societal problems, but some of you also have really stressful stuff going on at work and really painful stuff going on in your families. You've got problems. You've got problems where you're doing everything right and no matter what you do, people act hatefully to you. But also a lot of us here have problems that we know it's our fault. We've sinned against God. Like David, a lot of us feel like the pressure inside of us is getting deeper and stronger and it's spreading. Let me try to repeat something that we've said several different times. Guys, struggling with feeling bad, feeling sad, feeling depressed, feeling anxious is not a sin. A thought is just a thought. And we all struggle with it. Jesus wrestles with it in the garden. Paul wrestles with it. The question is, what do we do? What do we do? Do we, do we make our home there? Do we make our bed there? Is that where we live? Or is there a way to abide in God's love? And the scripture is teaching us while we're wrestling in those things, we can abide in God's love. So if you're asking the question, if you're here and you're not okay, and you're wrestling with the question, how do I keep going even though I'm not okay? What am I supposed to do when I know I'm not okay? The Bible gives a lot of answers. So we can't say everything, but let me give you one really important answer from today's text. What do you do? Remember the covenant. Remember the covenant. Everybody turn to your neighbor and encourage them. Say, remember the covenant. God is holding fast to you in a covenant of love, so you hold fast to God's promise. Pray covenant prayers, which is what Psalm 25 is. Cling to covenant truths. It really is okay to not be okay. Because God loves you. And if you've trusted in Christ, you're safe and secure, held fast in a covenant of steadfast love. And even though it's not okay, I'm not saying this in general right now, I'm saying it in your life, Christian, if you've trusted in Jesus, even if you're not okay right now, it's going to be okay because God keeps his promises. Even if your problems are your own fault, guess what? One of God's promises for you in Christ is to forgive your sins. 
and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness and to wipe every tear from your eyes and to heal all of your wounds. So our security is not based on how we're feeling. It's not based on how missionally productive you are. It's not based on how good you are at serving other people. It's not based on your performance at all. Our security is based on God's promises. Now, we don't have too much time left today, but I want to do two things in the remainder of our time. One, I want to take a second to step back from this psalm and help us see something that's really important. If you want to know how to abide in God's love, we need to understand both the universal breadth of God's love, but also the particular, deeper, covenantal experience of God's love that Christians have. Both of those are really important. So the universal breath means God loves everybody. Everybody say, God loves everybody. That's so important for us to know. But it's also important to understand that if you're, you're a Christian who's trusted in Jesus, you're exper- you have an experience of God's love which is deeper than that general love that he has. And then secondly, I want to very briefly show you some really practical principles from this ta- psalm about how you can abide in God's covenantal love. And how you can let that shape your prayer life. Okay, so first, let's understand this biblical point that God universally loves everybody and that he loves you in a deeper way. God loves everybody universally in at least two ways. He lovingly gives the gift of life to his creatures and preserves their life through his providential care. Every creature, every living thing. Psalm 136.25, we talked about a few weeks ago. God gives food to all flesh for his steadfast love endures forever. God made a covenant with all creation, with Noah in in Genesis chapter 9. And Psalm 136.25 is saying what that covenant means is God is committed to lovingly taking care of every living thing. So all of God's gifts to preserve the life of creatures show us his love. Or we could think about the teaching of Jesus. Luke chapter 6 verse 35. When Jesus tells us to love our enemies, he's saying we need to imitate the God who shows loving kindness to his enemies. Luke 6.35, but love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. So God lovingly gives the gift of life to his creatures and preserves their life through his providential care. That's one way that God loves everybody. God also loves everybody in this way. God lovingly offers forgiveness salvation, and eternal joy to all human beings. Now, I've quoted a lot of scriptures about this over the last few weeks. I'm just going to quote one right now, which is the most famous verse in the Bible. You know it already. For God so, what? For God so loved the world. John 3.16. For God so loved the world. In, In John, the world means specifically all of the rebellious, evil, wicked, God defying human beings on the planet. That's what the word world means in John. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Which means the coming of Jesus into the world is God saying to every rebellious sinner, I love you, come to me. I love you, come to me. By the way, D.A. Carson in his great little book, The Difficult Doctrine of God's Love, speaks to those of you who are who have experienced a deeper understanding of Scripture through discovering the Reformed tradition. The New, the New Testament scholar, D.A. Carson, is probably the most famous Reformed biblical scholar in, in America. 
And what he says is, if your Reformed theology makes it difficult for you to say to every single person, Jesus loves, died on the cross for your sins and God loves you, then you need to keep reforming your theology towards more biblical. If you don't know what I was just talking about, great, that's great news, just relax about Reformed theology. But what he's saying is, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Martin Luther knew, he understood, it's so important not to just be able to say God loves people in general, but he loves me. Sometimes it's so much easier for us to see that he loves our neighbor than it is for, to see that he loves us. And he said, you can know for sure on the basis of God's word. And he cited John 3.16. He said this, I certainly believe that the Son of God suffered and arose, but he did all this for me. Everybody say, for me. For my sins. Of that I am certain. For he died for the sins of the whole world, but it is most certain that I am some part of the world. Therefore, it is most certain that he died also for my sins. What we're saying right now is this. God loves everybody. He takes care of everybody. And in Jesus Christ, he is calling everybody to receive the gifts of forgiveness and eternal life. Everybody say, God loves everybody. But now what we're trying to say is, if you want to learn to abide in God's love, you need to know God's love, not just in that wide, general sense, but you need to know that if you've trusted in Christ, now you've entered into a covenant relationship. Which is different than what other people experience. And that covenant relationship is what we've been talking about here. God has bound himself to you. And he's bound you to himself. And he's bound you to him with promises that are unbreakable. And the promises that Jesus gave us are better than the old covenant promises. Do you want to hear some of my favorite promises? Thank you, Jared. Anybody else want to hear some of my favorite promises? Okay. I was going to read them to you either way. You need to know the promises of God if you want to be able to fight despair. If you want to have the tools when you're feeling overwhelmed and anxious and when you're hurting to abide in God's love, you need to know the promises of God. Let me tell you some of the ones that have more or less saved my life several times. John chapter 6 verse 40. Here's a promise to memorize. For this is the will of my Father. This is Jesus talking. This is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I will raise Him up on the last day. Did you hear that word of Jesus? He says, if you just look at me. That's Jesus talking. Don't look at John Mark. If you just look at Jesus and believe in Him. He says, here is my promise. You will have eternal life. And on the last day when Jesus comes back. To make everything new, you're going to rise from the grave with a perfected soul and an immortal body to live with God forever. Now let me ask you a question. Have you looked on Jesus? I just want you to actually answer that question. Have you looked on Jesus, church? Have you believed in Him? If that's true for you, then you will have eternal life and Jesus will raise you on the last day or God is a liar. That's what the covenant does. It says, this is not based on how I'm doing. This is based on the promises of God. That verse has saved my life a few times. 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. 
And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Do you hear what that promise is? When Jesus raises you on the last day, you will see God. You will enjoy an intimacy with Jesus Christ that right now you can't even imagine. Think of the moments where you felt closest to God in your life, where you've experienced the depth of his love, and then multiply that by 10 billion. That's what it's saying. You're going to see God, and when you see Him, that experience will so transform you that you will actually be like Jesus now. Doesn't that sound awesome? When I'm struggling with, oh, I've got so many doubts and so many sins, and I feel like a failure, here's a promise to claim. I'm going to be more intimate with God than I can imagine, and free from sin by His grace. How about this one? This is audacious. I almost feel bad claiming this promise, except for it's a promise of God. First Timothy, excuse me, Second Timothy 2.12. If we endure, we will also reign with him. And that's R-E-I-G-N. We will rule with Jesus in the new creation. Do you believe that? Look around this room. Look at all those people. Those are lovely, lovable, messy people, aren't there? I mean, don't you love all those people? What it's saying is when Jesus is done with this group, these people are going to rule with Christ over a perfected cosmos. That's a promise to cling to. Matthew twenty-eight twenty, Jesus promises to be with us always, even to the end of the age. He will never leave you for one second of your life. Romans eight twenty-eight is an audacious promise. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Which means, here's J.I. Packer explaining what that means. Every single thing that happens to us expresses God's love to us. Did you hear that sentence? If God is truthful and you've trusted in Christ, every single thing that happens to us expresses God's love to us. This is still J.I. Packer. And comes to us for the furthering of God's purpose for us. Even when we cannot see the why and the wherefore of God's dealing, which is most of the time in my life, we know that there is love in and behind them. And so we can rejoice always, even when, humanly speaking, things are going wrong. I've got more promises written in here, but I've already been preaching too long, so I'm going to stop. What I'm trying to say is the promises of God are awesome. The promises of God are awesome. And if you want to know how to abide in His love, you need to know that He loves everybody, but you also need to know that if you've trusted in Jesus, you've entered into a covenant relationship, which is something far deeper. It's a far deeper experience of that love. Okay, a few practical thoughts to end. If I lost you, which is distinctly possible and I won't judge, but if I lost you, I might want to call you back for this last couple of seconds. Ask the Holy Spirit to give you a couple of these practical steps that he wants you to put into practice in your life this week. What does this psalm teach us about how to pray and how to relate to God and abide in his love when we're in trouble? First thing it teaches us, should be obvious by this point, claim the promises of God. Claim the promises of God. Now to claim the promises of God, you've got to know the promises of God. So, homework assignment. If you're not in a community group, join a community group. And then go to community group this week. And one of the things we're going to discuss at community group this week is what are some of the promises of God that are most meaningful to you? And I want you to write those down. Put them in your windshield if you need to. Get a tattoo. Whatever you got to do. You can just memorize it if you don't want to get a tattoo. 
I know that's controversial maybe in the body of Christ. Fine with me. But you can get a tattoo of scripture. I think that's good. Um, didn't mean to talk about that right now. But I love all the tattoos in this house. I'm just going to say it right now. <laughs> so does... Anyway, okay, I'm just going to stop. <laughs> Um, God has given you promises and what it means to claim the promises is to do what's happening in verses 6 and 7 say God remember your promise God does not forget his promises but to say God remember your promise is saying God you promised to love me I need you to do that right now actively God you promised to forgive me I need you to do that right now you promised to provide for me I don't know how I'm going to pay this bill you promised to guide me I've got to make a decision in 10 minutes I don't know what to do And you claim the promise in prayer. That's one thing to do. Second thing, we got to learn to consciously reframe our circumstances within the broader context of God's covenantal relationship for us. Which means, if you're overwhelmed by your sorrows, don't try to hide those things or bury them. But learn how to thoughtfully bring them to God in a way that is also acknowledging they're not the biggest reality in your life. I'll tell you what I do. When I'm feeling overwhelmed by anxiety and stress and fear, which is pretty often, then what I do is often get out a journal, I'll write down all the things I'm stressed or anxious about. That experience helps because half of the stuff I'm anxious about doesn't even make sense when you try to write it down, right? But the other half of it is real problems. But then I start praising God for his character and I start claiming his promises. And by the time I'm done with that, my problems haven't disappeared, but my soul has been recalibrated because I framed them within a bigger reality. Two last thoughts. If you're here today and you haven't trusted Jesus, what I've tried to say is you know that he loves you and you need to trust him and enter into that covenant relationship. You don't have to earn God's forgiveness. Just come trust in Jesus Christ and then show your faith by receiving baptism. And when you do that, you're entering into that covenant relationship. And then here's this last reality for all of us. If we want to be able to experience God's covenant love for us, one of the things that we've learned throughout This study is that whenever God loves us, he says, go and do what? Go and do likewise. Treat each other in the same way. And the more we practice loving others like this with that covenantal, faithful, promise-keeping love that bears with people, the more we'll be able to receive and abide in that love for ourselves. Let me pray for you before we finish today. Father, I thank you so much for the saints in this room. Thank you for all that you've gathered here today. Lord, I pray in the midst of all that's going on in our lives and in our hearts, That your Holy Spirit would cause this word of your love to land in our hearts and grow deep roots. So that it bears the fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Lord, if there's anyone here in this room who has not taken that first step of turning from sin to trust Christ, I pray that your Holy Spirit would call powerfully and that this would be the day of salvation. Lord, I pray for Christians who are feeling discouraged and overwhelmed that this would be a time of renewed peace and renewed joy and renewed hope, and that you would teach us to love others like you've loved us. In Christ's name, amen.